Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car on impulse or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say yes to proposal from your significant other and start a family. Or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it. Whatever happens, when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be just one around the corner. So contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for the music in the introduction. Go buy their music, one of my favorite bands of all time. We have a very interesting, great guest this week. Very nervous to have him on. His name is Adam Platt. He is the head restaurant critic for New York Magazine, one of the best restaurant critics in the country. He's recently published a memoir called the Book of Eating, Adventures in Professional Gluttony. And Adam has been with New York Magazine since 2000 or so. And man, I was incredibly nervous to do this podcast because you might think it's one of the worst or best podcasts we've ever done. I'm nervous because maybe I come off as all over the place, totally scatterbrained, because I was so excited to have this chance to speak to a food critic Criticism has been something that I've talked about a lot in various episodes. It's top of mind for me all the time and don't need to go into, you know, what kind of neurosis that says about my ego or such, but it's the kind of conversation that isn't something that really happens. Maybe when a critic retires, I don't know of any time a chef has been able to speak to a critic in a podcast, usually you speak to a, a critic when they're fact-checking an article or a review. Or if you know someone that becomes a critic, you put up a Chinese wall and you never speak to them again while they're in service to their publication. But chefs and critics have traditionally had an impenetrable Chinese wall, right? They just don't talk. You pretend you don't know each other, if you, even if you do. And even when critics are no longer anonymous, as Adam Platt talks about, we don't engage with them. Even if you know, it's just the weirdest thing. You just never talk to a critic. I don't know if it's that way around the world or in other cities, but in all the cities that we have restaurants, you just don't talk to them. Maybe a little bit different in Australia because they have a whole different scheme of things, but it works well for them. Anyway, as a chef, you have a lot of mixed feelings about criticism. You know, I certainly do. It's something I read a lot. I read incessantly. You have no idea how much criticism I read about restaurants. Basically, anyone that writes criticism about restaurants all over the country, I read, not just in America, but basically anything that's in the English language, it can be incredibly validating, but it can also be confusing and frustrating. So to get to sit across one of the main critics in America and have a candid conversation is kind of like living out a chef's fantasy. And I really want to get a lot off my chest, and I can't thank Adam enough for just sticking with this and someone that was not a professional interviewer. And from the bottom of my heart, Adam was being incredibly good sport. 
to come on and engage in this way was incredibly brave. And uh, he's a really good guy. And it's something I've always known. And, you know, one of the things I've always loved about what Adam writes about is he's trying to write about the cultural context of restaurants. And he'll talk a lot about that in this podcast. And he's found his own way of writing about restaurants. And I've always appreciated that. That being said, again, thank you, Adam. If there are any other critics out there who want to come on, we'd love to have you. It doesn't have to be about restaurants. We've had music critics. We've had art critics. But any kind of critics. I'd actually like more music critics. We don't think we've had a uh, we've had Alex Ross recently, but someone that covers more contemporary music. Again, that's not true. Alex Ross covers contemporary classical music as well, but you know, pop music and stuff like that. Let's try to make it happen. Probably this should be its own kind of podcast, but uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Anyway, let me shut up. Let me get to this podcast with Adam Platt. Here you go. This one is a crazy one, as far as I'm concerned. One of the weirdest podcasts I've ever done, and I think I was a spaz the entire time. So apologies, Adam. Thank you again. I'm excited to do this. I'm with the New York Magazine food critic, Adam Platt, who recently published his memoir, The Book of Eating, Adventures in Professional Gluttony. Uh, We'll get to that in a second. But I have the curmudgeon himself, Adam Platt. Friendly curmudgeon. Friendly curmudgeon. Kindly curmudgeon. Kindly curmudgeon. Uh, Your neighborhood curmudgeon. (laughs) (laughs) This is weird, right? And You know, I don't think it's that weird. Because I, I, I mean, maybe it's weird, but I don't think it's that weird. I mean, in a lot of ways, our careers have... I don't, I don't say we've followed each other, but we have been doing the same thing for almost exactly the same time, right? I've reviewed several of your restaurants, right? It's my view that great chefs, and I consider you to be a great chef, have, much like great athletes, have a period where they are, they are innovative and in the kitchen and going crazy. But it's such a brutal, demanding job that much like great athletes, it's a period of time. Yes. I'd say it's about eight years. You may argue with me. No, I think it's about eight years. And if they're, as we both know, it's a, it's an incredibly difficult business. Your business is much more difficult than mine, although mine is now in in the free fall cratering of a depression. And I want to talk doom. about that. But we yes. can talk about that. But you know, and if you, like yourself, you make your reputation cooking, and then if you're lucky, you have to use another set of skills, which is your your uh, business, a businessman, innovation team building, whatever you, you want to call it. And so I don't feel so bad because I think that's where you are now. And I think you, I still review your restaurants. We're at Kauai, I reviewed this restaurant. No. I don't consider you to be the chef here. No, I'm not. We I, can I, argue I, about that. It's not. I'm definitely not. So we can that's, argue about it. I am not face-to-face with the with, great chef with, in, in with this Unjo kitchen. With Park, yes. Yeah, I'm face-to-face with the, the major domo, if you will. The chef of the, 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 right. the chef so, of nothing. So it's so yes. I'm fine with it. If you're not fine with it, and I'm sure again, no, I, I'm fine with it though. But you know, I say in this book that chefs or anybody in the restaurant business who I reviewed over time is well within their rights to never want to see me again, <laughs> and to build up all sorts of grievances. So well, I'm fine with that. If you, I, if you have grievances, you can air them. I am fine with that. You sort of mentioned a, a story or two about that with with a recently reviewed chefs that you have to bump into later, but um, 
I just wanted to talk about how much the world has changed. The fact that I can have a podcast and have a critic that's not anonymous anymore publishing his adventures in food, right? Correct. In 2020. Correct. That was not part of the plan, the game. No. When you started or I started. Also, when I got there, they were two, there was, it was a much smaller world, obviously. Right. Um, the restaurant, your world, your restaurant world uh, was smaller and sort of more, obviously more continental based. There were these few fancy restaurants that everybody went to and there were these j- journalists, a very small group, sort of self-regarding, quite eccentric, um, who uh, create were the tastemakers. And they really were the tastemakers in those days. Right. They sort of uh, the Craig, Craig Claiborne's, uh, Ruth Reichel, uh, you know, they went out to into the world and they sort of shined their headlamps on various people. And they came back and two months later, their reviews were published and everybody went to those restaurants, right? And the restaurants they tended to like, although these were different and they're you know, Claiborne like Chinese restaurants, blah, blah, blah. In general, the, the life of the kitchen was behind closed doors, mm. Right. And these restaurants were run, the, 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 the um, front of the house was run by your classic tuxedoed, uh, Sirio Maccioni, who ran Le Cirque, uh, Danny Meyer, run by, a, so it was a stage set run, run according to old-fashioned rules by, uh, you know, these settled characters, mostly male, mostly from some foreign country. And that obviously has all blown to smithereens. Right. In the time that you've been in the restaurant world and in the time that I've been a critic. But in those days, back in those days, the restaurateurs all knew who the critics were. They just pretended not to. And I think that's still to a certain extent, yes. certainly in New York, is, is, an op, is the opera. The dance is, is ongoing. But it was different. It was different. And I think you, you came on board as a critic for New York Magazine at a time when there was – a lot of change. Ruth had stepped down to work for Gourmet. Right. William Grimes took over as critic in 2000 or late 99. Right. And I remember Gail stepping down and then you were there for sure. And all I remember is everyone said, Adam Platt is tall as fuck. That's what the quote was. He's tall as fuck. You can't miss him. But no one knew what you looked like. TAF. Yeah. Tall as and, fuck, and but you bowl, don't know what he looks like. And, yeah. and bowl with a giant round face. But that all that information came later. Correct. Right? Because no one knew who you were. Yeah, correct. But I, I would say that by the time you opened your second restaurant or you opened Sambar, you probably knew who I was. Well, because we met. I, I don't know if you remember this. So I don't, I don't remember this. You know, you came on and people don't remember. I think, honestly, that was probably the best eating in New York for a select group of people. The super high-end dining was unbelievable from 99 to say 2004. And one of the reasons I opened up Noodle Bar was because there was no way for me to like express myself or was good enough to do that. Open up Noodle Bar. And I think it's now like 2005. And I don't remember what event I'm cooking at this charity thing or something like that, some gala and I bump into you, and I still don't know who you are. And you go to – I think you introduce yourself. I'm Adam Platt. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is tall as fuck. <laughs> and he said – you said this. I'll never forget this. He's, he said, I made you 101, and 101 is more important than number one. I have no memory of that. You don't remember that? I have no memory. You know, he but doesn't hey, remember you, that. You know, I it's remember. All good. Listen, listen. This book is filled with incidents that I remember, but plenty of other people have no memory. <laughs> 
So it's okay. So, but you know, I don't know. You I made you want to, maybe what I, I don't know what I, yeah. You said something along those okay. lines. I was like, hey, I was like, okay, great. And I didn't know what to do. And I was like, oh my God, that's Adam Platt. Right. And then. I mean, listen, for the record, I don't, I don't have chef friends. I don't, we, we. We've you know, never met. We've never met. We still haven't met. Except no, right now. Except for We don't that, hang out. No, no. Like, I just bumped into you and, and I, I had said, no Adam, idea. Adam and it's like, hi, I'm, I'm in like, I made you number one. Because like. When you, whenever I would see I never you, made you one number one. I made you number one on one. One on one. That's but what I, I meant. I wouldn't even say that because I don't like, I'm not making people. I'm like, I'm very, okay, fine. You, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh. I think I was trying to say that, that one on one is pretty good. No, and, yeah, and, and in this day meant. and age, number one is where you want to be. So you the, said the, something along those lines is one on one is great. And I think you thought I was going to be mad that I was one on one. I don't, I don't. Okay. I don't remember, okay. but it was weird. It's good. It's weird. It was, so, the whole I, thing was weird. I, I find it weird. It was so weird. I, I have no memory of it. And uh, that was that. And then obviously uh, your brother is a famous actor. Correct. And I got to know him because he would come in the restaurant. And I'd always never, the, the Chinese wall was very weird. Don't talk to Oliver about your brother, even though I want to. And I would, I would say in 16 years of doing Momofuku, I've probably seen you in an event most at the edible schoolyard five times. I, I, said, I think I saw you. The one memory I have, I don't know how interesting this is. Edible schoolyard is a, you're involved in it. It's wonderful. When we just got panned by oh, all the critics. And oh, he, well, this is moment from Nishi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Including me. Yes. I wouldn't call it a pan. It was probably a polite one-star review, but I, I, I feel you. <laughs> you saw how angry <laughs> and I you was. And like, you were not happy. I was so angry. You were not happy. And again, I'm fine with that. And yeah. I'm like, I, I've been kicked out of restaurants. I've been called bad names. I think if you're a critic and you're not doing that, you're not doing your job. So I'm fine. I'm, I, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more. Right. Okay. And, and I think probably if you didn't have this weird kabuki wall in place where everybody's trying to be friendly, it would happen an awful Can lot more. Can you describe how weird it is? Because I don't think anyone understands how weird it's, it's, it is. Yeah. Well, when you see a critic, it's like seeing, um, yeah, you know, an your ex-girlfriend or, or something. Yeah. Don't, and, don't, and don't touch him. Yeah, don't talk to him. Can't, Stay away. Yeah. But in the meantime, everybody is freaking out. And everyone knows that we know each other, but you can't talk to them. He's all freaking out. Everybody's it's freaking so out. so weird. And again, I just for the record, I am fully in favor of anonymity. I think that is the ideal way to go. Critics should be anonymous. You should be uh, sort of a fly on the wall. You should be treated like everybody else. Uh Becoming unanonymous for me wasn't my choice. It was a choice of my in the book. It was a choice of Adam Moss, who's just, I think he got tired with the whole shtick, and he'd had dinner with me, and he would just laugh like you know you, they all know you what you're doing. They know where you and are. You made a, it was a big deal that you were. It was a, he made it a big deal. Yeah, like he was a thing. It was like put put on the cover. But I, we used to talk about it, and there, there are various you know there are various things that happen when a critic goes into a restaurant, right? And and I, I, I critics have different habits. But um, if you're a smart restaurateur, uh, you'll know, and all critics are different. I've talked about this, and I, I think maybe you would agree, maybe not. Maybe you will just don't, you don't want to have anything to do with critics. But, but restaurant criticism is a dark art, right? It's the most um, subjective form of, quote, criticism, unquote. You know, unlike uh, book critics who read the same book or TV critics who watch the same TV show or movie critics, Restaurant critics are trying to deal with a situation which is moving all the time, right? And as you know, uh, one's uh, the enjoyment of one's meal depends on your own tastes. It depends on it, it, various restaurants on where they seat you, uh, how they treat you, what time you're going, whether 
the chef like you is in a good mood or a bad mood. <laughs> but there are all sorts of th- there are all sorts of variables going right. on um, in New York in a place like New York or, or L.A. where the stakes are so high. Uh, I think you would agree with me. Um, in the first three months, they're pretty much treating everybody like a critic, right? Is that correct? Sorta. Sort I mean, there are of. levels of soignier, you know. Yeah. But like pretty much, you know, they bring in teams to, to it was certainly true with the, the fancy restaurants. They bring Correct. in teams of, of waiters who you then see at the next opening. But l- l- let me, let me get, get some structure to this. So where would you put New York Magazine restaurant criticism in the sort of the, the food universe of New York? So for me, the way I started, it was, hey – uh, New York Post will review you first. New York Magazine is second, and it's a good barometer for for where people like want to go because that's how, this is before blogs, right? And you also had Time Out, so you, it gives you some information, Correct. and then you have Zagat, which Correct. came out a year later. But Correct. really, New York Magazine was super important because it was the first like real thing that wasn't a Post type review right. before the New York Times, right? But you know, New York Magazine, if I had to explain to someone, it's not an accurate analogy here, but it sort of was like the Golden Globes and the New York Times Oscars, right? Yes. A little bit serious, but more free-flowing, more, more fun. More juicy. More juicy. Irreverent. And and still to this day, you have Robin Robin, Underground Gourmet. and They're very serious. They're very serious. <laughs> and they – one reason why you didn't have to discover, like, the, the nooks in the wall was you had Robin Robin who were incredibly good and right. they were at war with the Village Voice and Sitsuma and uh, the war and, continu- and Florence war, Fabricant. Yeah, war continues. And for that was like to me right. a, like a, a very fun thing to watch right. because those Robin Robin are on it. They're on it. <laughs> They're on it. I, I'm and, a mere pretender compared to them. And it allowed you to block and tackle so right. you could do your opine in, right. in the way only Adam Platt could. Right. And try and try and Talk about the anthropological trends and try and, you know, yammer on. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, we can talk about what, you know, I was a quote unquote serious journalist before I became a restaurant critic. And I grew up overseas. Like I grew up, I don't know if you, you know, yes. I was a, my father. The, another thing we share is our Washington, D.C. heritage. I don't know if School you, of Foreign Service. I went, to, I went to Georgetown. My Probably father, the only I, I was, journalist I was in bo- food. Only, certainly the only restaurant critic ever to go to that school. Um, I was born in D.C., George Washington Hospital. Uh, my dad was a diplomat. Um, he was a China specialist. So me and my large brother, I have two large brothers. I really spent our formative eating years um, in Taiwan, where my parents both studied uh, Mandarin, and in Hong Kong for a long time. I lived in Hong Kong for about total nine years. Uh, and I graduated from the American School in Japan. So obviously, like, Asian food is my thing, even though I don't really know about it. Were, I, think, I think I know about it. Too? My dad was later yeah. ambassador to the Philippines, right. but I was grown up. My dad, my dad ended up being ambassador to... Various places where uh, the professional foreign service officers are, are sent, but the the ones who give money and want to go to London want no part of. So he was ambassador to the Philippines and also Pakistan. So serious journalists? Not me, serious. I mean, I was like, I worked for Newsweek. Again, this is all in my book. I, I was a, 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 a less successful. I was a I was a foreign affairs writer at Newsweek. Uh, I worked for the Washington Times. Uh, as a conservative, you know, I wrote, I traveled around the world and wrote things about, uh, actually, it was a very good job. I did that for a couple of years. Um, I worked for the New Yorkers who talked to the town writer. And in the book, I, tell you, I, I didn't never set out. I always love food. Uh, uh, when 
when I got this job, I was doing two things. I was a travel writer for Con Ed's Traveler. So I had a contract with them. So I was traveling around. And I was writing a, a, um, a diary uh, for the New York Observer, which you remember. Right. Late lamented New York Observer, which was another eccentric uh, place where you could write whatever the heck you wanted. And I had, a, I, I, it, when I would travel, I'd write a lot about food because my dad and my mom always viewed uh, you know, they, they were Tony Bourdain before Tony Bourdain was Tony Bourdain. Your mom Bourdain. was more into food than your dad. No, they were both into food. My, my dad was actually more into food. My, they both grew up in New York City. So they were both grew up in this restaurant culture where they, they grew up in the Upper East Side. So they had their various, you know, places where their parents took them. And they, 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 they valued being a regular at a restaurant. And the dining culture in New York is, you know, it's different than anywhere else, actually. Uh, I mean, it's not different. It's not different from Paris or Singapore or Hong Kong or... Uh, but the variety is different. Anyway, so they grew up in that world. And so when we would travel, they would try and find places where we could be regulars. So in Taiwan, we used to go out to a Mongolian barbecue restaurant, which oh, yeah. is in the so rice paddies outside, outside of Taichung. Taichung is a city in the middle of middle of Taiwan. And we had Mongolian barbecue. And then Hong Kong, there, Hong Kong was, even in those days, was uh, the first place we had French food, first place we had Italian food. Uh, you know, there were these, the whole panoply of styles of dining and of restaurants in Hong Kong. Uh, and then and in Tokyo, um, I would, I described this, me and my brother, uh, we went, the American school in Japan was out in the suburbs. So we went an hour and a half by subway uh, for two years. And those, those, at that point, we, food was a touchstone. It was a way to try and discover where we were and also we're moving around a lot. So it was a way to comfort ourselves. So I describe this as like these great buffalo grazing up and down the famous subway lines, right? The Shinjuku line and, you know, and that, we had ramen and we did all that stuff. And it was almost natural. It's not like we were paying attention to what we were eating. We had a, we had a sushi guy that we went to every month. Sushi not being sushi being a, a luxury real, food, real, but it was uh, all it was not it was natural. It wasn't like oh, this is something. It was our natural rhythm of things. And I remember when you first ate our foods uh, in all uh, the first like two or three restaurants. I felt like your reviews very much like reson like our food resonated with you because it seemed like you got it in a way because like a lot of the food was stuff that. Like I grew up eating or right. I, I experienced living right. abroad and right. you got it always right. because I didn't know how in depth and how well traveled you were because you had always said, and I knew that you lived abroad, right. but I mean, right. pretty that, extensive. That palette that you grew up with and that we sort of grew up with that. I mean, the Korean American, Korean, Korean American cooking is a different, Korean cooking is a, is a, there's this punch to it that any fat American guy living overseas as a kid can relate to. There's this umami punch, right. which is which is, which is is real Korean. It's also New, it's something New Yorkers love, right? It's, it's, um, but the other side, the ramen and, you know, the dumplings and the pork buns and also the fusion aspect of it. I don't know. I mean, I, I've described you as a great fusion chef. You probably didn't like that. But you are, you, you are, a, great, you are a great fusion chef Even from, from the beginning. Everyone's a fusion chef. That's I would argue that too. But you caught it in a way that it, it was it, it right place, sort of, right th time. That took off. That took off in some way. You also caught. I mean, I'll talk a little bit. You probably don't want this, it, it, and you might, may agree with this. You came along right at the time. I mean, all of these chefs who were cosseted in these magician chefs. You know the. The Alan Ducasses and the Bouloudes and the Boulets, these were great, wonderful, talented characters, right? 
Um, but they sort of, their stars descended just as the crazed internet came along mm -hmm. with this voracious appetite for anything, right? And there you were just standing there. <laughs> I'm sure you felt like right that. Right place, right time. I, I'm I sure don't you're know like, what, I don't I'm know sure you're like, what the heck? Yeah. Right? Well, I still feel that way. Well, why would, no, you shouldn't feel that way anymore. But like, I think to your credit, you adapted. Like you did stuff. Like Co, like I, I think I gave a very good review to Co, probably too good. I, who knows? Uh, and I, I only went there once. I remember I got a lot of flack for going there once. <laughs> I remember you wrote that. I'm I'll only get, going there I'll once. once. I got a flack because you couldn't get in. <laughs> yeah. Because the, the, the chaos was so f huge around this David Chang character. Uh, but, you know, it spoke to me. I wasn't the only one that it spoke to. So anyway, I, I always liked it. I mean, I'm, and I try to, in my reviews, I've always just tried to recreate the experience. I tried not to pass judgment. I tried to say this is what happened when I was there. And I always had good experiences. And your restaurants would always change. You always adapted them. I mean, Sambar, when I went in there first, was like, I'm not coming in here again. <laughs> You're feeding people weird burritos. And I, I, I was like, you know. That's good. I whatever. think, I mean, listen. To your credit, you got to adapt. How how insane was Sambar? I, I didn't know what Sambar was in the beginning. How, I mean. But, but the thing, this is the thing. It's got to be one of the crazier restaurants in the United States. It was, it was like that. these burritos. And I was like. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you're, you know, this is a long time ago, yeah. but I don't know if you're, you're but anyway, Sambar was uh, Chef Chang's second restaurant, yeah. correct? And he had this big, big hit with his first one in a, in a small way, but big, big, but small, if you know what I mean. Like your, your reputation was big, but what you had done was small at that point, right? So it's hard. <laughs> It's hard. You've got to do it. It's your second act. I mean, I'm so curious because I'm getting to talk to a critic that covered this. No, no, it's freaking weird. you out. Yeah, you see yeah, your yeah. face is turning red. <laughs> but it's like, it's hard. It's like you've got your second place. Yes. And I think, I think to your credit, you realize that you, you should, you, you know, you built your own little village, your own little terroir down and down the Lower East Side, down in the East Village. And you, so what are you going to do for your second act? It's hard. And, and what happened, I, I think you could, if you were paying attention, you could see yourself working through it yeah. over time. And, uh, you know, you were transparent about it. And you think, ultimately, you figured it out. So you it's think people good. can have that opportunity, chefs can have that opportunity today to work through something? Because I felt incredibly lucky. I mean, most people wrote us off and it was going to go bankrupt. We right. were. Right. But um, I feel like if that happened today with a chef trying to figure it out, they'd be out of business in two weeks. I mean, today it's a whole, as you know, it's a whole different thing, right? I mean, I can just, I can just talk about New York. New York has, has traditionally not been a place that readily accepts chefs' points of view. My, I think, I don't know if you'll agree with me, it's a very meat and potatoes town. Very right? much. Right, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the whole, I mean, our friend- Every city is a meat and potatoes I town. think every city, but there are certain cities uh, take, uh, you know, with the molecular gastronomy, um, Wiley Dufresne, uh, who was the great, one of the great chefs of our era, uh, his restaurants, I mean, New Yorkers would go there once or twice, but they wouldn't go back. Whereas if you opened his style of restaurant, which has been opened in Chicago uh, or other places, people would go there consistently because they're coming in from the hinterland. Well, I have so many things to ask you from your book too. And just in general, like, I don't know where to begin. My, my, my brain is scattershot. Uh, there's so many things. But you just talked about Wiley, and maybe this is a good entry point. My opinion, if the critics knew what was happening with WD-50 and, first of all, 71 Clinton Fresh Food, if they really, truly got it mm -hmm. and celebrated it mm -hmm. as they should have, mm -hmm. New York City would mm -hmm. be a vastly different dining town. It could be. That's what, I know that's Wiley's view. 
It's my view he as has, well. He has told me, not that we hang out, but he has told me on occasion that the critics never got what he was doing. And I, and my, I mean, I, it's a valid point. But no, I, I, I reviewed I reviewed his restaurants. Uh, his first restaurant, I, ironically, I wasn't around when 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 Clinton seventy one, and that was reviewed um, quite Every, everyone quite rhapsodically. Re- everyone loved it rhapsodically, yes. and I think there was a backlash when he went across the street and started to do this stuff that you know he'd seen in Europe, and he started to do to do his mad, uh, you know experimental stuff. I think there was a backlash and I, I reviewed, um, I can't remember the name of the restaurant now. WD50. WD50. I think I reviewed it kindly, but not rhapsodically. And I think, I I can't remember what the times did. It might've been that way also. It was two star. Well, I remember no one thought it was good. Everyone said, why can't you do 71 Clinton food? Yeah. And where's a salad? The yeah. Zagat guide was, where's the fucking salads? Yeah. It destroyed the notion of what a restaurant could be. And I'm, we have perspective now. Yeah. Hindsight's 2020. Yeah. But for those, that was, for those that were in the business as a cook, mm-hmm. we saw it as contemporaries. Right. And that was the problem. And I think this is what you alluded to when we first started this podcast was – it's hard for critics to know everything. It's subjective. But right. this is from the perspective of a chef in my industry. Right. At that time, you held in New York Magazine and the Times specifically held so much power. Zagat did as well. Right. Like, how many restaurants or uh, gastronomic movements were missed because it went over the heads of the critics? Uh, you know, I think... Uh, I will defend the critics a little bit. <laughs> that right? one. Well, I will defend them a little bit. Okay. Um, it's always been my view that a, a restaurant that doesn't exceed, ultimately, it's the customers who make the decision. Right? I and don't know it, if I agree with that. Well, I'll agree. I, I'm going to say that's what I agree with. You know, I, I mean, I think I think certain, I, I don't know that WD-50 was snuffed in its cradle. I think that the restaurant had a good long run. I just think it's tough. It's tough to to sell that well, kind no, of food. No, no, well, no, I'm just no, saying. No. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You're just saying like. A, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And I think if that that restaurant had gotten five star, ten star, hundred star reviews, I don't think it would make it made I, a difference. I completely. Well, that's where we, utterly we disagree. We differ. We differ. We differ. Be, be, and Wiley's a certain kind of chef, right? Wiley is a certain kind of chef. Um, very precise. He's a chef's chef. He's a cook's cook. Many great people talk about Chicago a lot. And I think one reason why modern cooking, you know, what people want to say molecular gastronomy, Mm -hmm. which is just gastronomy as far as I'm concerned, flourished in Chicago is because it was open to it. Right. And I think as a whole, critics on, on definition is they write for the, the readership to be the advocate of. Correct. But Some, also, somewhat, somewhat, but somewhat. also you, the critic is also an arbiter of taste of this is where things are going. And in the same vein, Ruth Reichel talked about uh, Hanmura on as you guys should eat here. Mm-hmm. In the same vein, mm-hmm. she wrote about great New York noodle town. You guys should eat here with mm-hmm. like open arms, mm-hmm. which was relatively esoteric to the modern New York population. They're like, what's that? Right. Well, maybe. 
Well, you know, that Hamaran yeah. review I thought was yes. instrumental yes. to people opening up their their viewpoints yes. to Japanese food. Yeah. That wasn't necessarily sushi. Correct. So here we have a true American movement. Correct. What Wiley was doing is distinctly different than what was happening in Europe. Well, a little bit. No, 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 no. no. I, see, I saw it as, I mean, maybe I was wrong. That's I, right. I, I saw it as an, a, a slightly Manhattanized version of, but not quite as... But this is when things started to go rapid movement in terms of food culture, right? Like we're getting move information more quickly than ever before. This is a, another problem that Wiley had. Well, and critics were still in the Stone well, Ages. But it, but, well, I, I, come on. Come stop, on. Come on. Yes. Come on, Stone Ages. Yes. The, you the, had no idea what was critics, going on critics, in 2002. Critics. Ferrana, Adria, critics, Heston Blumenthal. Well, but the critics went out there and did that stuff and mm. wrote about it. I didn't do it. You can't look at me. I'm a New York critic. I'm just, I'm a just New York critic. It. I'm a New York critic. There were plenty of critics who wrote about those places. Now, that, that, that had, style of dining had its they, eight, they had it its had eight zero years. Zero understanding. It had, well, I, sure. I mean, ignorance is fine. You can accuse well, me. That's being, what you, I'm trying to say is. You they, can accuse critics of being ignorant. Okay. But I, they had their, they had a good eight years. El Bulli was the best restaurant in the world for how, how long? It still is the best restaurant in, in the, the history time. of the world. Okay, fine. I'm not going to argue that. I ain't argue that. <laughs> Is it the most satisfying restaurant? Would I rather go and have a bowl of ramen and a pork bun than go then travel five thousand miles to El Bulli to have the? I don't We're know. We're in New York City. I'm man. just telling you. I'm telling you. It's I'm like, telling you. You know, you How have many the Met, you have the I'm Met, and you have the I'll MoMA. This I, was MoMA. I understand, but it's a museum. A museum is not necessarily the best model for a, a, a restaurant. Well, maybe food criticism isn't the best model to well, maybe not. Restaurants. Maybe not. But I'll tell you another thing. While we Stone Age critics were trying to do our jobs, the internet was exploding all around us. And the internet had a huge effect, not just on criticism, but on restaurants and how they were perceived and how the public well, digested them. let's go back them. to this case study. And you're correct. The internet exploded. But it's your fault, by the no, way. No, no, no. It's your fault. No, no, no. No, no. Don't get off topic. Wiley's not going to tell you that. But it's like the David Chet, there, there's two tiles of Chet. In the olden days, there was the Wileys who were celebrated. I think in the olden days, Wiley maybe would have moved uptown. Maybe. Right, and open a place uptown, and people would have gone. But th those days were gone. Like, the, the barn door was open, and the kitchen slaves were running everywhere. And Wiley, in many ways, was an anachronism. He was... He, he, no, he's, no. A, he's a great chef. He's a genius. I'm just saying what... He I'm, was a trailblazer in ways that people will never recognize. Well, because the trails never... They petered out. No, he, they didn't become popular. The reason anyone besides Katz is the reason why you have any serious restaurants down in the Lower East Side is because of Wiley. And sort the reason why of, sort of true. you have all these chefs, the, 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 school, the measure of a chef's success is by the alumni that leave there. That's the one measure where I would agree with you totally. There is no more important restaurant than WD-50 with the amount of alumni that have gone through Fine. there. So I'm giving, I'll give that and, to you. And and all these critics are like, oh, this chef is amazing. Where do they learn everything? Uh, it's the same I, restaurant that was vilified by critics. I, nobody vilified that restaurant. <laughs> I didn't vilify it. It was. So, no, it wasn't vilified. It received endless. My, my, uh, my um, compatriot at Grub Street, Alan Sitzma, he's always talking about WBD-50. He always put it on the Grub Street blog. He always went there at every opportunity. And he remembers one of the reasons, a lot of it is perception, right? It was the first New York restaurant that he went to when he moved here from Michigan. And it, for, to him, that was New York. 
Okay, that was New York. And it's fine. It's fine. Well, what no, did I say it's, about it's, subjectivity? It's, it, yes, but my job isn't to be subjective here. <laughs> my job no, is to I, figure I, out exactly what happens so we don't make the same mistake again. Well, I, you know, because if I, another show gets treated this way, man, that's not acceptable. I, don't, I just don't buy that, that it's the critic's fault at a restaurant. Well, I'm going to let me tell you I'm how. Not, I'm just not buying it. Okay, you're but you, no, can, you, but you have can, to. I will tell you exactly how it right, happened. You didn't lecture me. Go ahead. But I'm, I'm I so seventy one Clinton opens up in right. two thousand three. The internet. As we know, it does not exist, at least with food, right? You can't even, there's nothing that happens uh, food-related online. It gets opened and mixed reviews across the board because critics don't quite understand what's happening. That, at that moment, critics still, as you said when we started, held the keys to whether you're going to close or not. To a certain extent. To a certain extent. Yes, yes. Okay, fine. Come move on. on. Move on. Move on. There's no way. Move on. Because of the, the, the it got a two star by Grimes. And in general, Gold ripped it up in the gourmet. Yeah, he didn't like that kind of dining. Right? Yeah. Jonathan, again, we're like, talking about Jonathan Gold, Jonathan the, great, Gold. the great hero, the great. He didn't like it. Yeah. He didn't, didn't like he, it. He was, he was in, he, in New what? York at that point. I was the nicest critic about that place. You were, but. So why am I taking as a, all this as heat? A, as a whole, you guys basically, to give you an analogy, basically said, oh, this is Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Oh, this is uh, Ulysses by James Joyce, the equivalent in my opinion, and said, what is this stream of consciousness bullshit? This is not a sentence. All right. Hemingway okay. is a sentence. Okay. And that's what the critics okay. wanted. Okay. So Fine. you guys let, let the temp- This is important to talk about because yeah, this is continuing to I'm, happen. I'm, oh, really? And then the, the, the food blocks come in. And it, it it didn't have the critical mass for the timing. It didn't have the right timing that I had with yeah, well, with, you, the, with the so blogosphere. You, you had timing, but you also had a certain certain more slightly more accessible style. Correct. And, and you, you had you it also. Let me just let me just come on. Let me just as you know, it's very helpful to have this one viral dish, yes. right? And now chefs work on it. They spend six months working for their viral Instagram dish. I don't like it. You don't like it. You invented it to a certain extent. And Wiley, I was Wiley came from a different era. No, he didn't. Not he, really. He's, well, he's not that much older than me. I know. Okay. But he also. All right. I'm going to let you so, have it. So, I'll let you have it. This is why it's important. Okay. Because the critics didn't understand it. All right. In, in the way that they should have, in my opinion. I understand why they couldn't, because how could they know what's happening uh, in the present day? Um, it caused Wiley to then not make the food that he wanted to make right really that's why it was so important to talk about because what happened was he there were some dishes that he made accessible right and people liked them right and everyone said oh i just want that don't make that right so he got rid of all the dishes that were quote-unquote popular that the critics liked because they trashed everything else so Wiley wound up becoming in his own echo chamber a little bit. And I had a lot of arguments with him. I was like, right. Wiley, you can't do this. Right. And that set in motion something that we still are dealing with today. With In 2020, you just agreed that we're a meat and potatoes town. Well, we are meat and potatoes town. That's horrific. It's New York. No. No. Well, there's all sorts of, I don't there all sorts of other... I'm not going to... You can't say that the critics... Have turned New York into a meat and potatoes town. No, no, no. You had responsibility. There, there's all sorts. There's all sorts of things that were working against Wiley. All right. I think one was his location. 
I think if it had been uptown, he, he might have found a market that would have come. I, I talked about neighborhoods, right? Well, talk I, about I, I talked about neighborhoods. Uptown's a neighborhood. On the opposite end of the spectrum, It's uptown, a neighborhood. And this is where people may not it, agree. It's a neighborhood. But on the same spectrum of what was trying to happen, you had Laurent Thorndahl at Cello in a townhouse uh, on was, the Upper East Side. That was a great restaurant. Oh, what happened there? Critics love that place. Not yeah, really. No. They didn't but, understand you, it. No. Because okay. you know what? Cello was one of the best restaurants New York's ever had. I think we have established the fact that critics don't understand anything. That's fine. <laughs> I'm for that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon makes the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. Their mission is to make sure that all your basics and beyond are smartly designed with premium fabrics, and shopping for them is easy and convenient. I'm a big fan of their t-shirts, and I never thought I'd talk about underwear, but they're my underwear of choice as well. I wear mostly all navy blue Mack Weldon t-shirts and it's my t-shirt of choice as well. Mack Weldon even offers a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable. If you don't even like their first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will still refund you. Great, great, great guarantee and service by Mack Weldon. No questions asked. Not only do Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. They're great for working out, going to work, going on dates, and just everyday life. 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code Chang. That's an amazing offer. That's MacWeldon.com and promo code Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for 20% off your first order. Everyone needs new basics, guys, and they have more than that. Check it out, Mac Weldon. And now, back to the show. Let's talk about cello. Let's talk about cello, okay? Because cello is... is uh, Beautiful. It, and cello is also, um, it's in many ways uh, emblematic of what you're talking about. And it's sort of, it, it's sort of the end of the auteur chef. And Wiley, what, that's what I mean when he's behind his time, a little bit like these were magicians. Lauren Turndale was one of the greatest chefs ever cooked in New York, right? right. Cello was a small little town. I pre, went to Cello. Pre-BLT nonsense. Pre, no, no. And Cello was a refined seafood restaurant of the kind you never find anymore. You never barely find seafood restaurants anymore. Refined, highest taste, most beautiful style, very small restaurant. I don't know why he closed it. It got rave reviews, actually. I didn't review it. It was before my time. I didn't review it. I went there, and I said, this place is fabulous. This is like the old-fashioned New York. It's a destination restaurant. If you lived in wherever, you'd come here. It closed. I, I think it got very good reviews. It was up there, closed. It was not either not popular or there was something to do with the funding, and it just closed very suddenly. And I think the critics, in their ignorance, were actually saying, well, we're sad, we're sad about this. And then Turandell, to try and catch the popular wave, uh, progressed lower and lower on the, 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 the food chain. He ended up doing – and I, I reviewed many of his restaurants, all of them well. Like he opened a steakhouse called whatever it was BLT called. Steak. BLT Steak. I actually gave it a good review. He opened a seafood restaurant. I think he signed BLT a deal. Fish. He, yeah, which I gave a <laughs> less good review but still respectful. Right. And he just – and you know, he was trying to catch a wave – he, it was like a well-trained noble knight. I don't think in, in the, the BLT restaurants revolt. The BLT okay? restaurants did not really represent but his mad skill. But no, his skill. But his skills didn't sell anymore. 
Well, right? then, then, so I'm still I'm, I'm just saying, my point with this I'm just whole saying, the thing. critic, it's not the critic's fault. I'm just saying that's not the critic. Well, he, well then let's go back to this. But, this is you start Remember my metaphor. Time. Remember my metaphor. Okay. A well-trained, noble-born knight in the midst of a peasant's rebellion. Well, and the kitchen you, slaves uh, were running wild, right, eating right, all I, their I, stuff. All right, I fine, just, fine, fine. I fine, feel fine. This, I this last case should undermine your, your, your argument here. ADNY. By Alain Ducasse yeah. at the Essex House. Yeah. Great location. Mm-hmm. The world of New York wanted it badly. Correct. And uh, no one got it. Nobody. But you're talking about food that's not progressive. No. It couldn't have been more simple. Uh, it really was simple. It was disguised what? with pens and purse holders yeah. and all that nonsense. You know, I, mean, I write about this in the book. It was, it's like, and and I and I write an opening. My my I write about having lunch with Gail Green at at yes. Alicas, which was Alicas was a still the most decorated Michelin star chef of his day. Correct. Still a wonderful chef. Uh, and those this is in two thousand, and in, back in those days, the small coterie of self appointed food experts, right, and diners uh, would. This is the Franco-centric, continental-centric style of dining, and chefs like Ducasse would come to the city, and they'd be greeted, but like like popes, like visiting popes. They'd be, it was front page news in the Times really when, that, when that place. It was front page news in Paris when that place opened, and I I went there with Gail, and Gail, you know, uh, talking about a kabuki. You know, we're having this quite stilted lunch with Gail. She's not wearing her hat. She told me to. You know, she said, "Meet me." Uh, uh, ask for Rebecca Limos. And they show Rebecca Limos. You couldn't get a reservation to this place, like for seven, there was a book apparently for seven months or whatever. I get there for lunch. Nobody's there except Rebecca Limos by herself sipping champagne. So then we proceed to have lunch and Rebecca Limos and me, you know, she, Gail, I think Gail thought I was a, you know, a giant clown of some kind. And like she I'm should. Leaving. Why shouldn't she? Like I, this guy's taking my job. He doesn't know anything about food. What's he doing? So I'm muttering away. She's sitting there in a, in a not happy. And Ducasse comes out and goes, Gail, how you doing, baby? What's happening? What's shaking? And Gail's like, hello. So anyway, so much for Rebecca Limos and the disguises. Anyway, that restaurant I describe as being uh, the official, and, and Gail went on to write a, a, a cover story takedown of that place. All right, not not me, Gail. Cover story takedown, and in that sense, that's the influence of New York Magazine, because the other critics will then take their cues from that to a certain extent. Grimes gave it a bad three star review. Correct, and as you know, there are you can get places three. You know, stars have become a style a style right. of restaurant as opposed. So that's a that's a critic's trick. You give them three stars, and you give them a bad review. I, as a critic, I, and a, as a social anthropologist somewhat, I saw that as the end of a certain dining era and the beginning of a new one, which you represent. Well, no, this is 99, 2000. Yeah, it's a long still. time ago. It's eons ago. This is way before my time. It, I know. But that was, that was a restaurant which was, I, it's, it, was not, the, it was the French Revolution. I'm not disagreeing with it you It was the all. French Revolution. It was overstudied. The pens were silly. The new dining. But were critics really going in there subjectively because objectively the food was near perfection? I, I don't know. I I didn't review it. I well, reviewed it later on. I think they didn't. I think they they thought that this it was overcooked. But I don't think and that that re- style had become curdled. No, I don't think they got it. Because if you, you talk think- to any chef, that everyone says that might have been the best restaurant. A lot of my friends think yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. That was one of the best restaurants New York's ever had. New York, the, 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 the folks, uh, the, the, the populace disagrees. They turn their back on well, it. Well, because they're serving food that the populace didn't understand. Populist disagrees. They I never went know. there. Sorry. Oh, do you like Le Bernardin? Populist likes that place. There's something about that place. It was false. It wasn't part of the, the terroir. It was the end of an era. Then the kitchen slave revolt began. I'm not going to agree with you. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm saying. I think that's we what took happened. One of the great chefs of all time in New York City kicked the shit out. It of him. was time for New York to have its own voice, food-wise. Guys like you. But the next restaurant time, like that was per se, and yeah. open arms. Not me. Everyone else. Not did. me. I, th I thought that was sort of a facsimile of a restaurant. Per se, it was a, a, a great, I've had some of my best meals there, but for for that to happen three that, years later, it was like I mean, he was a, thirty six months changes the whole that, perception not, of what was, they're very different restaurants. One was very French, and one was California as New York. They're very different restaurants. ADNY was the best restaurant that New York City's ever produced. Okay, fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to change your mind. Let's move on to another topic. <laughs> no, but the reason all I'm okay. saying, all I'm saying. This is, and this is an, this is the great this is one of the divides between chefs and critics right. and writers, and you know the, the restaurant chef where my my brother plays a character. Right, the the, he plays a critic, and I I enjoyed that. Yeah, you enjoyed it, one. and it was it was. Uh, I don't think he based it on me at all. Or although when they were going over what he was saying, he called me and goes like, "Send me some really bad reviews, like when you're really mean about somebody." And there's a scene, there are various scenes in, in that movie where the critic says horrible things. So I sent him some stuff and, and he, he and um, John Favreau. Your, your buddy Favreau, who, who, whose movie it was, said, no, this is weak. Your stuff, <laughs> your stuff is weak. This is weak. We want a little more, uh, a little more bite to it. And so I directed them towards A. a. Gill's writing, you know, the great London critic. And they go, yeah. Yeah, that's what that's what we're talking about. Well, thankfully, we haven't gone there. Okay, no, we haven't gone there. But anyway, and so, but but my point about that restaurant, I mean, not that restaurant, that movie is that that movie is called Chef, so it's very much the chef's chef's perspective of the critic, and that uh, Oliver played the critic, I think, much in the way the kitchen views the critic. Uh, you know, they show him from behind this big guy in his jacket entering the the the. The restaurant, like a, a a pro wrestler villain, enters sort of the ring, and so I think you know, yeah, I, I think there's a. I don't view myself like that. I just view myself as doing my job, no, writing about stuff. I, I'm, I'm and not I picking think, on you. you. You can pick on me. No, but I don't feel I'm picked not, on. I, I wish I could articulate this better. No, you've articulated it perfectly. No, but chefs love these restaurants, and chefs have a different view. I would say ultimately it's the public that closes restaurants, not critics. Well, you, I, I think you would more, say more critics so are than, more more so than ever. I think there are many factors involved to the success or failure of a restaurant. The one thing you're hoping for as a being judged by an arbiter of taste, whether it's a critic or not, is that you're going to get a fair shot or they're going to be uh, up to date on what's happening, right? And I don't blame the critics. This is what I'm trying to say. It's like, it's impossible for a critic to know what the fuck is going on in the world. I really can't believe you thought Restaurant Al Ducasse was the best restaurant ever to open New York. I, think I can't believe it. For I really the sheer ambition and- I can't believe The product- it. I was the, like, that's that's interesting. The, 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 I don't think anyone's gotten product as good as ADMY. Okay. I'm just, hey, just saying. Like, hey, I just thought it was a, not a successful restaurant. Um, I mean, that's Okay. But <laughs> from a chef's perspective, I mean, I, it's interesting. You know, this is the, there's a gulf. 
And and how? But uh, you know, but the critics like you. How do what 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 happened? I'm not there? talking about like Gordon Ramsay's restaurant. That was not good. And like, I actually sort of like Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine, but it wasn't like. No, that was it. That was the last. That was if it, the, the the French invasion. That was that was Waterloo. I'm going right? to tell you another restaurant Waterloo. that was probably more important that didn't get enough credit was Peacock Alley by Laurent Gras. That got two stars. I can't remember before that. your I don't time think I even, at the Waldorf Astoria. Yeah. And again, I'm 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 beating this you're beating, to death. You're beating it. You but, can keep. Keep eating it, but you will. Well, you will. The reason why I want to bring up this is that I think there are many factors at play. As from a chef's perspective, we want we're we're up to date as much as we can, as least we hope. But it would be like being judged by a critic, and yes, it needs to be delicious, and a lot of that onus is on us. Most of that responsibility is on us. But I give you two examples, three examples, really. Um, because cello should have been, hey, this is the best restaurant in New York City. Yeah, but critics wrote it. No, they didn't. Not like I that. remember they did. <laughs> they wrote like, it. So, so you have three restaurants of three different kinds doing very progressive things, right? And progressive can be simply plated food like ADNY, even though it had all the bells and whistles. What are we supposed to do as chefs if, and I think this gets into the next conversation about the relevance of food criticism today, no, because I, I don't believe here that food go. critics can know everything, particularly in the early aughts, as as we've now seen. And even today, how can you know all the things that's happening in Japan, in Peru? It's impossible. You can't know it. It's impossible. So I agree with you. We're just trying to do our jobs. We're just trying, man. I We're just trying. I will say, let me just say this. We respectfully disagree on these various restaurants. I think Cella was awesome. I think... Ducasse was a mess. That's just me. In the time that I have been reviewing restaurants and in the time that you have been a chef and restaurateur, uh, would you agree that the tastes of the public have changed? Now, I think you you give chefs, you give critics, you think critics have a big, big part in, in, in making taste. Used to. I think, I think less so. And I think less so starting in the early aughts. Well, this is I the think point. there was a, just let me let me no, I'm let me go. let me let me just briefly. Okay, <laughs> I think the the generation of diners who fed at the Ducasse the, the Ducasse style restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, especially in these, this country, uh, these are the post war generation, our parents effectively, right. right? They grew up on TV dinners and casseroles and things like that, and they were comfortable. They were taught by the various tastemakers, Claiborne, uh, you know, the various the various continental centric tastemakers that this was the style of food that they should like. They were comfortable going to these restaurants and being told by usually men, usually wearing dusty tuxedos, usually speaking in fake accents, that this is what they should be eating and appreciating, right? And and the critics. Critics did actually tell them that's what you should be having with with most, you know, with a few exceptions. Their children, who were not the TV generation, they were really the Starbucks generation. Mm-hmm. They grew up in in malls, going to Starbucks in the suburbs, but more empowered. Starbucks is actually a very sophisticated place. You have to go there. You're, you're talking about coffee after all. It's a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a, it, it, you know, it's, it, how do you want my beans done? What do you want in it? It, 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 it was an empowering, it's a, it's, a, it's a more empowering fast food place than your average. Right. You know. That generation came along starting in the 2000s, right? 
wanting a different thing. They didn't want to get talked to in French restaurants like their parents. They wanted, frankly, what you gave them. They wanted simplicity. They wanted style. Uh, their Pied Piper was Tony Bourdain, who actually articulated the joys of a David Chang restaurant for this generation perfectly. I remember in one of his episodes. So the whole ground shifted under, under everybody's feet, right? And to a certain extent, critics were adjusting to that because critics grew up thinking about four-star, three-star, five-star restaurants. And now the world was changing at high speed. And the economics of the world were changing at high speed. And I think chefs like Wiley, the great chefs who trained in these great temples, who were the great, you know, everything became simpler and at once more complicated. Yes. Right? And it was certainly more complicated for critics to figure out what's going on. And it was more complicated for you guys to figure out what's going on. But I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I don't, I'm in complete I hear what you're saying. everything you just said, very eloquently. I know that yeah. food writers don't do nearly the amount of work that they could do in studying stuff. When you write a cuisine that you're not familiar with, you know, it can be at times reductive <laughs> because maybe this is the copy editing. I have no idea. But as a whole, that's, again, how fast food is moving is that the critics need to, unfortunately spend more time studying stuff that they never had to study before. And I'm going to just give you another example as to how uh, antiquated a lot of these notions are. So many critics, maybe even you, say, oh, kimbap, that's sushi. I'm sorry. That's unacceptable. You can't say that. I don't think I ever said that. A lot of critics do. Okay. But I'm not. Well, I'm actually, I'm going to defend them. But I'm just going to say, listen. You can't, you can't say that. Okay. But that's important. That's an important thing. I agree with thing. you. I agree with you. Agree but with that's you. just my culture. Think about how many other kinds of foods. And again, I'm not blaming food critics, but what do we do when the pace of restaurant output and the menu output far exceeds the ability? Because you, you're not omnipresent. It's impossible. How, how no. and what well, do we I do? Would, I would actually argue, I mean, I'm, again, all I'm thinking about is New York, right? I'm just, I'm a critic in New York. Uh, I think uh, in New York, I mean, after, we've talked about Houston, we've talked about you know, LA, everywhere, this great awakening of all different kinds of foods, right? Golden age of whiskey, golden age of certainly of sushi in this town. Um, but I'm just in New York. And in New York, um, you know, there's been a great leveling. It, it is a city more and more of neighborhood dining, less and less of destination dining. Uh, certainly in Manhattan, uh, the uh, if you want to have ambition, it's usually often tethered to a hotel lobby or even where we're sitting. Yes, right. A more and more a giant real estate development, and that leads itself. I mean, I'm a great admirer of this restaurant, as you know. Gave it a good review, albeit possibly ignorant, but it was a good review. <laughs> Um, you know, if you want to have ambition, it's like, you know, you, you need a backer now because the, the, the barriers to entry are, are so high. So I would, I would argue that New York is less, I mean, the, de the destination, great French restaurants the, 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 that exist around town uh, are the same ones than when I started writing reviews 20 years ago. Right. Bernard Dam, Baloo, they're the same ones, right? The new ones tend to be... Uh, High-end dining now is, 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 is restricted to smaller tasting rooms. You started that trend too, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. But it is a, it, it is a model that works well in New York. 
um, because you're not paying a big rent. You're not, you don't have a huge staff. We're going to see a lot more of that. No, of course. Well, we've been, last 10 years, that's, yeah. that's been hot, fine dining in New York. I new fine dining it, to such an extent that I've grown tired of reviewing those places. I don't blame you. Right. And I, I like them all. I've been giving them good reviews, but they're, they're somewhat the same. All right? the sushi are there's some, it's, The sushi's it's great, but it's all the same. It's 500 bucks that you're surrounded by sushi bros with the their giant watches. <laughs> I, I would say, yeah, you know, it's, it, it's something that actually sadly lends itself to top 10 lists as opposed to reviewing the same thing again and again. I personally have always appreciated what you're doing because you're, you know, you struggle to, and oftentimes very successfully try to capture what the hell is going on in this culture that's rapidly changing. I'm and trying. you probably have spewed more words spewed than anyone words. else I'm about big, that. A big spear about so that. So I've always appreciated I'm that. I'm trying. I'm trying. But uh, uh, and quickly just on- Why don't we talk about the Redskins or something? No. What about the Wizards? We're going to go back to the book in a second. What about like hot shops? What do you feel? I love hot shop Marriott, right? It's Roy Rogers. Love Roy Rogers. Wisconsin Avenue. <laughs> I just I just stopped at a Roy Rogers on like New York. I was doing a reading and I, I was I drove back town downstate and I stopped at a Roy Rogers. It's what some, you get? some through it. I got a roast beef sandwich, of course. And with uh, you know, horseradish dressing. It was fabulous. Um All Roy right, Rogers is a fried on. chicken burger chain. But going back to criticism real quick. Oh, so I'm not allowed to, it was roast beef. Is, well, that's what Broy Rogers is all about. Never mind. They have great Carry fried on. chicken. Fine. They have great fried I chicken. Agree. I, 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 I respect that. <laughs> they think the only thing we agree upon right now. We're agree actually, we agree on a lot of things. Agree we hate Dan Snyder. Yeah. So bad. I don't know. Bad dude. But, it, but, uh, we're talking about the owner of the Washington Redskins. We're both Redskins fans. We're both DC fans. Um, I have hope for the future. Although I, my problem with Dan Snyder and the Redskins, I have trouble not paying attention to that. I know. And I think what's happened is that a curse has been put on that franchise <laughs> and it's all about their name. And the curse will, 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 will continue to hover over the franchise until the name is changed. Dan Snyder will never change the name. So bad things will keep happening. Quarterbacks break their legs. Uh, people have heart attacks. I mean, it's a cursed franchise. Nobody's going to that stadium. And the only, I, I, I maintain if you are a real Redskins fan, you will not root for them. See, sad. I can't. I, 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 I you can't. can't. You I have can't to it. drive that franchise's value into the ground. It's the only way. Trump, whatever. But going Carry back to criticism, I, I just want to know, did you ever, because I've never been able to talk to a critic. This is like, you don't understand how. No, you're, 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 you're getting your money's worth. Um, oh, thank you. Oh, no. <laughs> just try to pour up some water. I need some whiskey now. Um, thanks. So... Have you ever written something and thought two years later, it's like, fuck, I fucked that up? Sure. Yeah. Why don't we write about that? I don't know. That would, I mean. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, you're. But critics listen, are not infallible. Critics, no, they're critics not. They, they make mistakes all the time. Not all the time. Somewhat. I mean, I, I still, I still critics think. Critics are fallible. Excuse I still think that ultimately um, it's the patrons who close the restaurant. I think critics have a can, can have an effect early on, but if you want to like have a long run, critics can get people to come to your place. But you have to have, we want a long run, you have to develop a following, and that's the critics can can only go so far with that. Well, maybe I, I'm just, maybe, I'm just, maybe for you, but the New York Times, I feel otherwise. Well, when, I think back I, in the I, day. I think the New York Times still. I mean, I don't know whatever. I think we're operating in a different environment now, and I think Pete would probably agree with me that ultimately it's the patrons who close a bad restaurant. 
And I'm trying to, but I'm trying to think the times that I was wrong about restaurants. That's all. I, I, mean, I mean, I've like, I'll tell you also a little, this is, this is, and I say this in the book, um, uh, the restaurants that I don't like, I often don't review. Right. And Pete and, said the same thing. And too. I'm sure he said the same thing. And um, where I tend to be more judgmental is with uh, restaurateurs who can afford it. And so the classic, you're taught this in journalism school, journalists always talk about it. And the job of the journalist to a certain extent is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So my harsher reviews uh, tend to have been reserved for places like uh, um, uh, the people that can afford it, like, like, like Keith McNally back in the day. Uh, like like uh, Mary Batali back in the day, or uh, Peter I, Lugers, I, or uh, Peter Lugers. I, I I happen to think Peter Lugers was was right. I go to Peter Lugers all the time. I did a listicle on steakhouses. Peter Lugers number twelve. That's two years ago. Just because you go there, and we live in the golden age of steak consumption, your, your restaurants have fabulous steak, and they're just still giving you this the same stuff, and they're uh, jostling you around and uh, treating you basically like crap. And charging you cash for it, so I, I think I, I find that to be as and and again the, the critics will always say we are on the side of but, the consumer. But, but but why why even talk about it? Because because people, people are go still there, going there in yeah, droves. Who cares? Why, why should you be the arbiter of don't go there anymore? Uh, you should you should blow the trumpet now and then on behalf of the consumer because guess what, consumer, you're getting ripped off. I feel like there's a illogical, like there's uh, a logical flaw in this lo somehow. No, and, no. And Keep how working you're able on to it. do that. Yeah, I'll get back to you on that. Keep working on it. But as a whole, like, why don't critics admit their mistakes more often? Well, I don't know. I do. I, I'll admit it. Like I, I would, I did it a lot actually. I mean, it's not different than like the let NFL me, draft. Just let me, let me, <laughs> let me just just calm down and let me just uh, in in my in the New York magazine. The way it would work is that I would review, say, 30 places a year, 30 or 40 places a year. And then at the end of the year, I do my list and I do this big monster, one of, you know, the big wrap-up. And in the wrap-up, I would often try to make things, uh, like adjust things that I thought I'd gotten wrong. Um, one of the big reviews that I, I, I wrote a, uh, you know, the restaurant Carbone, those guys yeah, were buddies Yeah, and you talk about it in the and, book. And I talk about it, I, you know, but Carbone... A very hyped um, uh, ersatz red sauce restaurant by uh, your friends. We all uh, worked together, Cafe Blue, years uh, ago. Okay, friends uh, who followed your model. What I, you know, they they opened this wonderful um, Italian deli style place down in the village. Uh, and I, you know, the, it, when Carbone opened, they were at the height of their powers, and it was a huge fanboy. I mean, this is what the internet does, also. Like it, it creates this, like the breathlessness of the blogs is just unrelenting. And if you're an old fashioned sour critic like me, it's like it drives you insane a little bit. And so I wrote a one star review of Carbone and they went justifiably quietly insane, uh, kicked me out of their next restaurant that I tried to go to. Uh, but I've since recanted on Carbone. I like Carbone now. I think Carbone's good. I have actually said that. It's high up in the listicles. So we, you know, there are ways we can try it. And by the way, my review made not a whit of difference. <laughs> Carbone's a hit. The grill's a hit, right? So, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. This is a- That's all this, I can say. Now, no, of course, the New York Times did, New York Times did give Carbone three stars. So 
I mean, I, uh, what I say doesn't matter so much. But I don't anyway. know if we'll ever have answers. I think it's worth having these conversations because there's no, it's not about having a right or wrong, but I think it's healthy to have these conversations because I think it's been one-sided for too long. I think it's not one-sided with the whole explosion of the internet. Correct. Everybody is giving a voice to everything. 100%. Okay. And it's changed everything, right? It's changed the way te- you know, chefs tell stories. It changed the way uh, you view the world. Like you've been a very adept at telling your story online. And it's something you, you, know, you I think if, if you're, if we didn't have social media, I don't know what David Chang would be. I mean, maybe you could say, I don't know. I think I'd be gone. <laughs> sitting at hop shops, get, getting, getting upset. You know, who knows? Who knows? I think you would have had a great neighborhood following and you would have, who knows? But like the, 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 the rocket fuel that is social media has really changed everything. I, again, this is bad for me because not what I want. It's a nightmare. I, I somehow feel like food criticism, which is healthy and it's a, Healthier than ever before. I really believe that. We have more voices than ever before. I think we need more diversity than ever before. We still need more diversity. But I think we're going to head towards the model we have in the UK. Oh, the crazy uh, London. Uh, yeah. Just just entertainment for entertainment's sake. Correct. Because that's what's going to sell. Because what you have to do is sell. You guys have, it's a I'm business a, too. I'm a great admirer of my, my, my colleagues in London. It's, a, it's just a different world there. It's a shark tank. It's almost performance art. Right, the critics, but there are there are critics who don't do that. I mean, there uh, Marina Laughlin's a great critic for the Sunday Times who took Gill's plays, right? And I, I write about Gill in Gill, the late, the late great, the late great A. Gill, who basically for him he was a wonderful writer, and um, he also has a great taste, great knowledge. I mean, he grew up in you know he marinated in the continental dining culture. Um, but he he loved to go go after things and 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 uh, create these pictures of chaos, and they're fun to read, undoubtedly. And Jay Rayner the same. Jay's the same. More power to him. Mostly they go. You know, I think I think you're right. I think New York critics or or American critics try to be, still be more diligent, like go to places twice or three times, pay for everything. I think you're right. I think in 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 London it's much more like uh, and. It, yeah, it's much that's more seat my, of the pants, but also it's it. That's what their readership wants. That's my prediction. Okay, is that that's we're going to have? I wouldn't mind that. We're going to have some like Fox News type of food critic. I mean, the Sean Hannity of I food mean, critics is I unfortunately going to come uh, our but, way. But I think we both agree that food criticism, like you want people to read it. Yeah, of and course. I, my, my my worry, and I think is is that people read it less and less. I read and it's every less and less relevant. I, can I know you do every city. You're a chef, but like when I started out. Um, and I think Pete will tell you this also, uh, you know, they did the list of the, like the stuff online that's like playing the lot and big and the restaurant review was always at the top and now you can't even find it. Mm. You know, it's, it's just been overwhelmed by everything else. Grub Street was the first blog that New York opened and it's since been, it's still functioning, you know, a little, little train that could, but it's been overwhelmed by the noise which coming from other blogs. Started off with our mutual frenemy, Josh, the late Josh, Josh Ozerski, yep. which you write in your book too. Yep. And by the way... Uh, and I'll talk about it more in the intro. Like, if you want to have a better understanding of what the future is going to hold, and I always tell this to my chefs and my friends, is you need to know what's happened before. And I think I'm talking to the one individual that's really tried his best, very successfully, to to know the heartbeat of where food trends are going and to explain it. And I genuinely, I've never told you this. I've always admired and I've always appreciated what you've done. And I've always agreed with you way more than not. 
right? There are times I don't, but 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 the reality is, is uh, this book covers a lot of it. It covers the whole past sort of 20, 15 years of, yeah. of food in New York City, which yeah. is arguably the it's, most important. It's, it's the history of dinings to a certain extent, yeah. at least in America and possibly everywhere else. I mean, when you go, I don't know if you've de- eaten in Paris lately. I was in Paris a couple of years ago and I was, I said, well, where's the new restaurants? Where are the trendy restaurants? Show me to a trendy restaurant. And I, they, they, they gave me the names. I dutifully wandered. And I was, I was literally like I was sitting in Brooklyn. <laughs> Film or Brooklyn ten years ago, like right. filament bulbs and you know uh, pieces of steak on on butcher boards. And I was like, "Come on, please, please." <laughs> so you know, New York, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're you know we're, we're at the forefront of something, and a fascinating we're, life story, which right? is the pleasure of being a restaurant critic in New York. You know, you literally. The world is here, and it's not just food you're writing about; it's cultural trend. I mean, don't you, you get tired of it? Because your I wife t- certainly does. No, she's totally tired of it. That was I, I love the, that part. The, of the book. way you don't get tired of it is because in New York, it really is anthropology. I mean, if you wanted to, for better or worse, chart the local the the, the the history of gentrification or Brooklyn or whatever, or if you want to, you go you do it through restaurants, right? Or if you want to show, talk about the history of immigration th- to New York, you do you, you the, f- the first thing you look at probably would be restaurant, for better or for worse, right? So the, the, you re- it, it is it is a world that reflects the city in a way that it doesn't so much in other cities. Although more and more like Houston, you're talking about other ones. So yeah, it's it's uh, I manage to keep interested. Uh, your daughters want to be part of your content anymore because that's like my favorite part, especially when you do those little you know, excursions together. I have two daughters, um, uh, but both are, uh, my wife and I adopted them in, in China. And it's a beautiful they, story. But they're both, they're both very much New Yorkers. Uh, they both grew up, they went to the same high school, same grade school, same high school. They grew up, I think, I think uh, I had such an itinerant childhood that I wanted for my children to be in one place for better or for worse. And that's how they grew up. Um, but they have, they're very different. And also they have, they do have this genetic taste thing. And there's this, I don't know if it's in the book, there is this story, uh, you know, they, they love dumplings, they love the noodles, they're very umami. umami. Uh, one is more, more, more sensitive to sort of fancy dining and the other one is just a New York dining. Uh, but what one thing that we would do, and we still do it, is we buy uh, frozen dumplings downtown and, and bring them up and cook them for Sunday dinner or something. I remember one of the fir- first times I, I I did this, we boiled dumplings or I pan fry them, and one of the daughters go, and if you know, if you're from the northern northern part of China, they, they like black vinegar on their dumplings, mm-hmm. right? It's not soy sauce. It's not the sweet weird stuff you get in Chinatown, which I think is some Cantonese thing. I don't know what it is. And one of the daughters go, Dad, do you have any vinegar for this? <laughs> not soy sauce, vinegar. So it's like the, the, there is this inherited taste that they have. And anyways, I still take – they they want to go on these excursions less and less, uh, but I still take them because, uh, A, I, I enjoy their company and uh, it's, fun, good it's, hot it, takes. it's fun to write about them. Their hot takes are the best. The best. They're the best. <laughs> they've, they've, they've inherited the plot hot they, take. They're the best. And, and, uh, and also, um, I remember years ago, I would – because it's hard writing a restaurant review. Especially my my dinosaur style of review, which is uh, part service and also part scene, but it's very formulaic. You know, you, you and I, I, I'm unapologetic about that, but also sort of sad about it. It's it's quite formulaic because you're writing. I I, I grew up writing uh, for print 
magazine. So you're really writing to space. It's not like you're on the internet uh, or social media. You're like writing endlessly. So I'm writing to space and I'm trying to describe the menu and I'm trying to say something interesting about the place. I make it, give it some sort of cultural relevance. And I'm trying also to uh, tell the reader what to, what to eat, right? So you have to sort of cover the, the waterfront. And so you're always looking for ways to jazz it up. And I, in, very early on, I would do what other critics do or what Gail Green did a lot. I would say, my friend, the noodle loon, or my friend, the pork fiend, or my friend. And Adam Moss, who's the editor of New York, came to me, or he, it was, it was, the command was, was, uh, came to me from on high, uh, Platt, Platt, stop writing about your friends, right? But the daughters were never excised. They always liked the daughters, so. There's a lot of stories in your book. I've held you hostage too long. Um, I, took pleasure in realizing just how unlikely your life story is and your summers in New Hampshire and all these things. How you wound up as a food critic. This is one of the most insane yeah. stories of all time yeah. in food, truly. And I think it's worth your read. It's an easy read. I read it in uh, just going back and forth on the airplanes as they do now. But what's next for you then? You've written this... This sort of... I think what's next for me is um, carry on with my job, which I still enjoy. But ultimately, uh, I'd like to imagine a quiet retirement uh, under a palm tree somewhere where I all I do is go on a series of juice cleanses. That's it. Aren't you tired of eating? Yeah. You get tired of it. Don't you get tired? Oh of it? my God! It's tiresome. That's why I dream and of I, and, I, and I'm thinking, I'm seeing it, and I blame you for this again because I blame you for many, many of the trends. <laughs> the food at the restaurants I'm writing about is just heavier and heavier and heavier. Why am I, I, I was responsible a, because for that? you just like that's you, umami heaviness. I mean, I, this is a wonderful restaurant, but I defy you not to try and order like a third of the menu at Kawi and not like be crawling out on hands and knees. That's not true. So good. That's chi- not true. The chicken for two. Yeah. Anyway, it's my job to try and ingest all this stuff. Anyway, I'm just, I'm finding, I just was, I was in Brooklyn last night at a, you know, a brasserie time. Very good, but just so, so beefy and heavy. Do you feel that there's so repetitive and everything? Don't, you, don't, doesn't that break your heart a little bit that wherever you go to eat, you're sort of eating the same thing? I mean, sometimes, but it's always interesting. Really? I'm trying, yeah. That's my party line. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Um, Thanks for having me. Wait, one more. You think a buffet? No, I'm going now. You think a buffet can come back? Uh, you know, I listened to your last podcast. Shop. You know what I liked? What? You know, you know what I would really like and spend a lot of time in. And I'd like to do. I'd even consult if you were in another city. Is a David Chang sports bar? Be fun, right? Oh God, I'm I'm all for that. But what if a I'm sports bar that. was the best restaurant in town? That's good, too. Yeah. I like that kind of food. But what about a hot Wings. shop? You grew up in the D.C. area. I never liked hot shops. Why didn't you like hot shops? What, what is hot shops? It's like, I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I know. It's, but it was. it's like, what is hot shops? Right. So, Rose B. Sandwich was like, I, I went to, we went to Roy Ride, me and my brothers, because again, we went to these places. Uh, we the, the original Armand's that's in the book oh, Armand before it, it was a before it was a closed now yeah but it, it became a pizza place but it started out as a little sub shop on Connecticut Avenue right around the street from where we lived it's where I would go to get underage beers 
Armand's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, then it became, <laughs> then, then it came popular, but we went there just to eat a lot of steak and cheese subs and, you know, then lie on our bed sadly and burp. Sir. Yeah. Thank you, sir. I'm sorry. I harassed you for it's almost all, two you know, hours. You know what? You know what? It's your prerogative and I don't blame you. <laughs> You got a lot of pent up, pent up feelings about about restaurant critics, and you know, it's, it's, uh, I am the willing, uh, the willing object of uh, all of you. I, I love you, Platy, and uh, it means a lot that you came on. And uh, thank you for thank- for subjecting yourself to my stupidity. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, that was my conversation with Adam Platt chief restaurant critic for New York Magazine. Go buy his book, his memoir, The Book of Eating, Adventures in Professional Gluttony. What a good sport. One of the best critics out there. I genuinely study his takes about food and also how it relates to culture. And there is a treasure trove of information for chefs to study. If you want to brush up on uh, Adam Platt, there's some good reading out there if you go through his uh, all of his reviews, which are online for New York Magazine. And his book is a terrific, fun read, so check it out. Want to get to some Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com questions? You can send them in on email to AskDave at MajordomoMedia.com or give us five stars on iTunes. If you give us five stars, I will answer your question. And here are some from the iTunes iPod page. UC Deventer writes, Hey, Dave, just wanted to drop a line to say my husband and I enjoy your show. Keep up the good work. Question, how is the emerging presence of pre-planned meal boxes, i.e. Blue Apron, Sun Basket, at all affect the food scene and more specifically your restaurants? It's a good question. I don't know if it affects. This is my take on home delivery meals. I'm not worried about it long term. Let me just put it that way. The whole idea of these pre-meal box plans, I think they can work. And I have some friends that obviously work at Blue Apron. But as a whole, I have some suspicions as to the long-term viability of these meal plans. There will always be a market, but I don't know how big that market can be because the irony here is the more you use these meal plan, pre-planned meal boxes, the better cook you're going to be. So you don't need to have it chopped. You're going to want to cook the food yourself from start to finish. And I think that's one of the issues here is that the success of these pre-planned meal kits are they're, they're very easy to use, but the problem is if you use them every day, you're going to get better at cooking and you won't need them anymore. And I don't know if that's still the case, but that was something that I saw early on. And I don't know if that's going to affect restaurants. In my opinion, what's going to affect the restaurant scene more specifically is the fact that more and more people are cooking at home. And I don't have any data su- to support that. And when I talk to people in the industry, they think I'm out of my fucking mind with all this ghost kitchen bullshit. But my opinion is that cooking at home is come full circle and we have food literacy at the highest levels it's ever been. People know more about food than ever before. And as we've talked about in previous podcasts, it's the one thing that you can't download. There's this FOMO factor. There's that sense of hearth and community and cooking for others that is so enriching and so impactful and something I've learned a lot more about uh, the past sort of year and a half or you know, expecting as a dad and now as a father, cooking at home more than ever before. It's something that I've understood. And I think it's made me a better restaurant owner and I hopefully a person because it's it's reconnected the power of cooking for someone that you love and you care for. And without sounding cheesy, 
I think that as this world gets more complicated and potentially more dystopian, the one thing that will always be important is to be able to connect with someone in a way that isn't on a computer or on your cell phone. And when you cook a meal for someone from scratch, that's as pure of an expression of care and love as I think you could possibly have. And I think, I believe wholeheartedly people are going to cook more at home than ever before. So whether it's a meal kit or not, that's what I think we're going to see. You know, and, and I think if anything, that's going to be what's going to help change all the variables that are affecting restaurants, whether it be labor, the environment. Uh, I think one thing that you're going to have to add is, again, a knowledgeable consumer base that can make a lot of the foods that previous generations could never make. We underestimate the power of YouTube, completely underestimate the power of YouTube and uh, social media for the sort of the, the treasure trove of recipes that exist. And um, more and more people are cooking from them. And I see this, and this is just my gut. This is my intuition. So uh, I don't know if I answered your question exactly, UC Deventer, but I appreciate you sending it in. Kenneth W. Zhang writes, love the show and just listen to your conversation with Stephen Ornella discussing the ethics of meat eater again. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how to define delicacies in the culinary world and where to draw the line, if that is even possible. It's a question that puzzles me, especially with the coronavirus pandemic happening at the moment and all the reports of its origin from bats. On one side of the coin, there is being adventurous to try new things. On the other side, however, it may have come from a necessity to survive. Again, love the show and would love to hear your thoughts. Well, Kenneth, I'm not an anthropology expert and I'm not an economist and I'm not a, you know, infectious disease expert. And I know that this is a scary time. And, you know, that podcast I did with Stephen Ronella is one of my, my favorite ones because we talked about some tough questions and, you know, growing up, and then not even still growing up, people ask. And on social media, I bet you I get it once a week, some phrase that I eat dog or Asian people eat pets and stuff like that. And, and that's a loaded thing to talk about. A lot of it isn't necessarily delicacy, but these are culinary traditions that were born out of starvation and necessity. And maybe not be the case today, but how many things in culture do we have that are vestiges of the, the, the old, right? Of very ancient things, and we don't really think about it. I don't have an answer. The only thing I do know is this. I have to follow the, the guidelines of what science and, and the newspapers are saying and how, you know, more people have the flu or die of the flu than this version of coronavirus, whether it was transmitted from a bat or something. I don't know. I'm not an expert here. But what I do know is this. To assume that every Asian person or every Chinese restaurant is some way of you getting sick is very problematic to me. And that I know. And I just know that I'm scared for a lot of Chinese restaurants. I'm scared for anyone that looks Chinese. I'm Korean. I think there's a lot of unnecessary fear that turns into xenophobia. And the reality is, I think it would be statistically hard to catch this. And I'm not trying to say that you can't. And I, I don't know where this is going to go, but to immediately assume that any Chinese restaurant is going to get you sick is problematic to me because um, it's not about skin color here, guys, you know. But the one thing you will find for me is I will always support Chinese restaurants 
I will be going there a lot, uh, more than ever these days. So I, I want to make it a, a real concerted effort to give all my money I possibly can to these families that run these Chinese restaurants in Chinatowns and and, and anywhere that's uh, in North America specifically, because, you know, there's enough articles out there from the LA Times and the New York Times that shows that businesses is dropping off. And I can't answer the, the, the anthropological questions, Kenneth, as to why people eat something and how this, you know, it's not a pandemic yet from what I've read, but um, it gives me great concern that people immediately make the assumption that you get sick from a Chinese restaurant. There's been enough cultural ignorance and stupidity for Chinese food to fight through. This is the last thing that it needs. And um, all I hope is that people understand that and they support and they visit them. It's tough to live in fear, but uh, you will find me in Chinatown. Okay. That's a bunch of questions. Uh, what a weird podcast. Uh, <laughs> all kinds of questions from you guys. Keep on sending them in. Thank you again, everyone, for the support of this podcast. Stay tuned next week for our new episode. Give us five stars, however you rate this podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you.